The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Would you like to do something for God? Daniel 11.32 says the people who know God will be strong and do exploits. Hello, I'm Christine Darg. I'll never forget years ago talking with a Sephardic Jewish friend in Jerusalem who was amazed to learn that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was Jewish. What, my friend said incredulously, Santa Maria was a Jew? Well, Mary, the mother of the Lord, is the most important woman in history, and she was a good Jewish mother. Mary certainly was a role model, and a lot of people don't realize that Mary was the quintessential Jewish mother in the right sense of the Jewish mother idiom. You see, Jewish comedians have told a zillion jokes about Jewish mothers and how proud they are of their children and grandchildren, but how they always tend to nag and brag about them. Well, Jewish mothers can be stage moms, talking, for example, about my son the doctor, and complaining that their children never call home, and so forth. In one of the gospel narratives in John chapter 2, we actually see Mary, the mother of Jesus, being a bit of a stage mother because she and Jesus and his disciples are all attending a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and something embarrassing happens. The host runs out of wine. So Mary, knowing that her son is called to be God's man and that he's destined for great things, appeals to Jesus to fix the problem. Mary starts to manipulate behind the scenes, and in fact, one of my favorite Bible verses is John 2, 5, where she enthusiastically says to the servants at the banquet, do whatever he tells you to do. Well, Jesus curbs her enthusiasm somewhat by saying, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour hasn't yet come. Nevertheless, like a good and dutiful son, he honors and obliges his mom by performing his first miracle. Jesus orders six stone water jaws, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, to be filled to the brim with water, and the water is changed into superior wine. In fact, the master of the ceremony says to the bridegroom, everyone usually brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink is brought out. But you have saved the best wine till last. Well, I can just see Mary bursting with pride, as any mother would do, at the astounding miracle of her amazing son, whom, after all, she'd loved and nurtured for 30 years. Although in this instant, Mary got a bit carried away and started to manage the situation, for the most part in the Gospel accounts, she's a woman who's incredibly prudent, astute, and patient in the face of horrific sufferings over a long period of time. 
Mary, in Hebrew, her name is Miriam, is to me the model of the quintessential Jewish and Christian woman whom both men and women can emulate. You see, in 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. The Hebrew of this verse doesn't mean perfect as in perfection per se, but it means the Lord looks for those whose hearts are loyal and totally sold out to God like Mary's was. And so I can think of at least seven reasons why God chose Mary out of all the women in her generation to be the mother of the Messiah. God chose her, first of all, because she was of Jewish nationality. You see, she had to be Jewish to qualify as the mother of Messiah, and she had to be descended from King David. And according to Luke chapter 3 and verse 31, Mary was descended from David through David's son, Nathan, while her husband, Joseph, who was the legal guardian of Jesus, was descended from David through King Solomon. Jesus' legal genealogy through Joseph is listed in Matthew 1.6. Now, secondly, narrowing the candidates, God selected Mary because she was a Jewish virgin. The doctrine of the incarnation demanded that the Lord's mother be a virgin. God selected Mary for the important reasons I've already mentioned, but also, thirdly, it was because she was a prophetess. A prophetess is a female prophet, one who sees and speaks on behalf of God. And the Bible mentions a number of prophetesses. You see, the ministry office of prophetess is a legitimate ministry for some women who are called and anointed by God. And Mary's song that's called the Magnificat, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, proves that she was indeed a prophetess, able to speak fluently under the unction of the Holy Spirit. It was important that Jesus' mother be a prophetess to be a suitable mentor because he was called to be a prophet, but of course, more than a prophet. As a descendant of King David, Mary possessed a gift of praise and prose similar to David's. And her conversations with the young Jesus would help to mold his thinking and his speech patterns. A fourth reason that God chose Mary also had to do with the importance of words. You see, she was discreet. She kept her own counsel. The Bible says that she pondered and treasured truths in her heart. That means that she didn't blab everything to everybody. A person who can keep their own counsel possesses great inner strength. A fifth reason that God chose Mary is that she possessed the gift of faith. She knew the word of God and she also knew how to receive the oral rhema word of God. In order for Mary to nurture Jesus and to help him fulfill his vocation as Messiah and Savior, she had to be a woman of faith and vision. A sixth quality that caused God to choose Mary was her obedient heart. 
Not only did she say yes to the incarnation, but she also had her son circumcised according to the Mosaic law, and she herself submitted to the laws of purification. She was a keen observer of the Jewish festivals, and all of this obedience is described in the Gospel of Luke. And a seventh reason that God chose Mary in his foreknowledge was her capacity to suffer in silence without whining and complaining. You see, there's a sharp contrast between Jesus' mother and the women of Jerusalem who were wailing and crying as he passed them bearing his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Some say that there was an element of self-pity in their cries. Even in his agony, he had to console them rather than them consoling the Savior. But there was strength in Mary's silence at the cross. She wasn't wailing and tearing out her hair, but she supported him. She saw him finish his work, which is the hope and vocation of all true mothers. Well, I enjoy studying the call narratives in the Bible. Call narratives are verses where the Lord speaks audibly or through an angel to a person describing their life's mission. And Mary's unique call is recorded in Luke chapter 1. Luke was a physician, so at some point he interviewed Mary about the incarnation. And Luke recorded that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee that we often visit with our tour groups. And Gabriel was sent to a virgin named Mary who was pledged to be married to a descendant of King David named Joseph. Well, the angel greeted Mary by saying that she was highly favored and that the Lord was with her. So many Christians today claim visitations from angels and they easily post their experiences on the internet. But in this account, we get a glimpse of Mary's character and modesty. She was both perplexed and alarmed. You see, we have to consider the cultural context in Mary's day and even today in Orthodox Jewish circles. It's not allowed for a man to greet a woman. It's not lawful for an unmarried woman and a man, even a messenger, to be alone together. But I want you to notice that she didn't express doubt. Like the priest Zechariah did earlier in this chapter, when Gabriel visited him in the temple and announced to Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth would conceive a child for the first time in their old age. Because he doubted the message given him in the holy temple, Zechariah was struck speechless by Gabriel. But Mary wasn't doubtful. Rather, she expressed modesty and humility concerning the very delicate matter of pregnancy. But Gabriel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, because you found favor with God. Then he said quite plainly, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. You see, the name Jesus in Hebrew is very important because Yehoshua, Jesus, Yeshua, means God is salvation. So it was very important that the child be named exactly as God commanded. 
once I heard a great man of God give his testimony, and he said that the Lord had instructed his mother to give him a biblical name, but she didn't obey. She gave him a secular name. But you see, names are important, and it's important to let God name our children. Anyway, Gabriel continued. He, he said to Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, the first part of the prophecy has come to pass, but the second part will come to pass at the Lord's second coming when he'll receive the throne of his father David here in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Well, Mary asked, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the Holy One to be born will be called, therefore, the Son of God. And the angel gave Mary some wonderful inside information that even her elderly relative, Elizabeth, who was barren, was now expecting a child and that Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Well, Mary responded, she said, I am the Lord's handmaiden. Let it be unto me according to your word. And afterwards, she hurried to the hill country of Judea to visit Elizabeth to see for herself Elizabeth's condition. And as soon as Elizabeth heard the sound of Mary's voice, Elizabeth's yet unborn child, who was John the Baptist, leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She began to speak in a loud voice, which is often the way a true prophetic word comes across. Loudly, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Oh, what a confirmation. Just imagine Mary's sheer relief and joy. They hadn't even had a conversation yet. Mary certainly hadn't told Elizabeth her secret. Yet, Elizabeth speaks under a powerful prophetic anointing. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? You see, Elizabeth was prophesying by the Spirit and testified that Mary's baby was not just any ordinary baby, but was God incarnate. And there were no telephones and emails, so all of this was communicated by the gift of prophecy. Then Elizabeth adds a prophetic word that's one of my favorite verses found in Luke 1.45. It commends Mary's faith, and I believe it's also a Bible verse to be used by anybody who's holding on to a promise from God. Elizabeth said, And blessed is she who believed that there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Wow. What powerful confirmations to Mary of the angel Gabriel's visit. Although she was a virgin, now she was certain that she was pregnant and it was of divine origin. Elizabeth herself must have been surprised by what she was saying. That's exactly how a true prophetic word comes across. It just happens spontaneously and bubbles up suddenly out of one spirit 
by the anointing and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And Mary responded with a great outpouring of thanksgiving to God. Her song is known liturgically as the Magnificat. It reveals that Mary is indeed a prophetess and that she had a great knowledge of the tenor of scriptures. It begins Luke uh, chapter 1 and verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his handmaiden. And all generations will call me blessed. And her song goes on showing a great knowledge of God in the scripture. Just as Jesus is known as a man of sorrows because of the prophecy about his life in Isaiah 53, so Mary is also known as a woman of sorrows because another major prophecy was spoken over her life by the prophet Simeon in the temple in Jerusalem. In just a few sentences, Simeon gave the whole history of Jesus and his relationship with Israel, and then he looked solemnly at the young mother and prepared her for the future with a warning that a sword would pierce her very soul. It was a scary word, yet it was a very necessary word of preparation. And I'm sure that many times Mary inwardly thanked God for Simeon's word because it helped her to make sense of what she was going through and what she saw and experienced. You see, already up to this point, the road hadn't been easy. Already she had to trust that Joseph would believe her testimony that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. No woman in the history of the world had ever experienced such a dilemma. But because of a divine dream, Joseph believed Mary and he didn't divorce her. Yet now in Luke chapter 2 verse 35, the prophet Simeon is predicting that her very soul would be pierced. And who was this Simeon? Simeon is described in the New Testament as a just and devout man who met Mary, Joseph, and the baby as they entered the temple to fulfill the requirements of the law on the 40th day from Jesus' birth. The text suggests that Simeon could have been the officiating priest in the temple. Some writers have identified him with a member of the Sanhedrin, Shimon ben Hillel. And there's a tradition in the Eastern Orthodox Church that Simeon had been one of the 72 translators of the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. According to this particular tradition, as Simeon began to translate a famous prophecy, Isaiah 7:14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. He was going to write the word woman instead of virgin, but an angel appeared to him and revealed that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah born of a virgin. Well, one thing I always want to emphasize is how the New Testament is a Jewish book. And here in Luke chapter 2, we have an account of Mary as a good Orthodox Jewish woman undergoing an act of ritual purif purification. 
According to uh, the Mosaic Law, a mother who had given birth to a man-child was considered unclean for seven days. Moreover, according to Leviticus 12.4, she had to wait a further 33 days to be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. That added up to a total of 40 days. She mustn't touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification were completed. The Christian feast of the purification corresponds to the day that Mary dutifully attended a Levitical ceremony of ritual purification. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2 starting from verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so he came in to the temple by the Spirit. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said, and Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary his mother, and behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce also through your own soul. Traditionally, the Catholic and Eastern churches depict icons and paintings of Mary with swords piercing her heart. These swords represent any number of heartaches, including, first of all, the painful slanders against her reputation, the whispers and accusations that Jesus was, was illegitimate and that she was a loose woman. Other sorrows that lay in Mary's future included the fact that she, Joseph, and the baby would be forced to become refugees for a season due to the hatred of King Herod and his slaughter of the innocent babies in Bethlehem. It was Herod's wicked attempt to destroy the young life of his rival, the Messiah. And so Joseph was warned in a dream that they should flee to Egypt. To religious Jews like Mary and Joseph, Egypt was the land of darkness. And so the command to leave all that was familiar and to descend into a land of darkness was a real form of suffering. When we look at pretty Christmas cards of Mary holding Jesus and riding on a donkey led by Joseph down into Egypt, we tend to forget their suffering. But it was a perilous journey and only real people of faith could be entrusted with the care of God's Messiah. Another heartache is every parent's nightmare when Jesus was missing for three days which was incidentally a foreshadowing of his burial for three days. 
He was a child, and Mary and Joseph found him safe in the temple, interacting with the elders. Although Jesus returned to Nazareth and was obedient to them, nevertheless, his otherworldly rebuke caused a form of suffering for Mary. Why were you looking for me, he asked. Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? That was a signal that a gradual separation was necessary. He would become detached, as are all who are called to special missions. When God calls, we must love the Lord more than home, family, and friends. And Mary had to learn to let go and to let God have her son. Her duty was to support Jesus in completing his vocation. And eventually, her role shifted from being mother of Jesus to being a disciple of Jesus. Mary's other heartaches inevitably concerned Jesus' passion. She stood at the cross. She saw his pierced hands, feet, and side. The Pieta is not recorded in the scriptures, but many forms of art depict Mary sorrowfully holding his corpse after Jesus was deposed from the cross. When studying Mary, we have to maintain a biblical view. Unfortunately, in some quarters, adulation of Mary has sometimes surpassed the honor given to God and Jesus. But nowhere in this Bible do angels or apostles accept adulation. There was an incident, in fact, in Luke chapter 11, when a woman in a crowd suddenly raised her voice and called out to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that gave you milk. But knowing the hearts and minds of people, Jesus intuitively answered, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. While Mary certainly occupies a place of honor and dignity in the scriptures that sometimes Protestants have ignored, surely we can agree with both Gabriel and Elizabeth that she is blessed. However, in the Magnificat in Luke 1.47, Mary herself testified that she was not without sin because she said, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You see, only Jesus was sin-free. Sinners need a Savior. And the shortcomings of Mary and everybody else in the world were atoned for time and eternity by the Savior, Jesus the Messiah. Well, I hope that you've received some insights about Mary as the quintessential Jewish mother. And if you'd like to watch our other programs, they're all available anytime at our website, exploits.tv. There you can click online for details about our upcoming prayer convocations, and you can also read the news concerning Israel and Bible prophecy. And I'd like to connect with you on the social media. Lately, we've been receiving some wonderful answers to prayer. Please also tell your friends about our ministry and website. And so until next time, earnestly contending for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. I'm so grateful to God that we can make the Jerusalem Channel available to a global audience and to you. There's so much spam in the airwaves and on the internet to distract us from what's really important. 
Every day it seems that there's another internet sensation, usually a pet performing silly tricks or something like that. The experts claim that our attention span for watching a video is just a minute or two. And even that needs razzle-dazzle effects with a thumping soundtrack to retain viewers' interest. So they claim. Well, that's just not what we're about. Taking God's Word seriously and explaining what the Lord is doing in this critical hour means that our videos are at least a half hour of content. And we're honored to say that over three quarters of a million people watch our free video teachings. Now, if we were a big church or a large media ministry, we would have all the necessary resources to make the Jerusalem Channel possible, but we're not. We're just a small team with a mandate to declare a biblical message and to help you understand God's heart for Israel and the surrounding nations. And because God also loves the Muslims, the Hindus, and everybody in the world, our ministry also shares the good news of saving health to all nations. Although we make do with the vital support from you, our viewers and website visitors, there's so much more we could accomplish in the critical harvest days ahead. One major goal is to offer our videos in other languages, in Hebrew, Arabic, German, French, Spanish, Hindu, Urdu, and so on. But that will only be possible with your help. Our ministry is tax deductible in the United States, and we're also a registered charity in the UK which allows us to claim gift aid on qualifying donations. We really need you to help the Jerusalem Channel continue and grow. You can make a credit or a debit card donation online at our website, jerusalemchannel.tv, or by phone. In the USA, it's toll-free at 1-888-245-2692. And in the UK, our national rates number is 0300-561-005. Thanks so much for being a part of this End Time Outreach and praying for the peace of Jerusalem.